When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of violence and sexual encounters. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about the succubus. Today's episode combines elements from a number of medieval legends and folklore to give you the most dramatic retelling possible. Arnulf had spent most of the day in preparation for tomorrow's synod of bishops and clergy. The sacred assembly was to be held in the French commune of Saint-Lys, and Arnulf would have to leave before dawn in order to attend. It was of utmost importance that he attended. His fate depended on it. If he failed to convince the clergy to recognize his uncle, Charles, Duke of Lower Lorraine, as King of the Franks, he would either be imprisoned for life or killed. By plotting to overthrow the current king, Arnulf and Charles had committed high treason. Arnulf entered his bedchambers and barred the door. He swept the entire perimeter of his room with his candle, hoping to frighten off any rats prowling about. He was deathly afraid of the vile creatures. Satisfied that he was safe, he laid down, snuffed his candle, and fell asleep. Only a few hours had passed when Arnulf opened his eyes. What little sleep he got had not been peaceful. Anxiety over the following day's synod weighed heavily on his mind. He heard the door open. He tried to remain calm. The room was incredibly dark, and although he could not see anyone, he sensed a presence approaching the bed. Arnulf wanted to sit up, but a heavy pressure in the center of his chest kept him from moving. He strained to lift his head and saw two red eyes staring at him. The eyes belonged to a huge black rat. Arnulf tried to scream, but no sound escaped his lips. Fear gripped the archbishop, and he prayed silently for God to help him. Suddenly, a fire striker sparked, lighting the candle next to him. As the flame illuminated his chambers, Arnulf was surprised to see that the rat was gone, replaced by the face of a beautiful woman. At first, she appeared human, but as the candle burned brighter, 
Arnulf saw that the woman had wings on her back and hooves instead of feet. Arnulf struggled as the female demon lowered herself upon him. But it was too late. His body felt weak, drained of its strength. There would be no stopping it. The succubus would have its way. Arnulf squeezed his eyes shut and prayed for the Holy Spirit to give him strength against sin. Arnulf woke to the sound of soldiers banging on the bedchamber door. His head throbbed in pain, and his limbs were too heavy to lift. Through the window, Arnulf saw that the sun was high in the sky. He had slept through the synod. His plot to overthrow the king had failed. The door broke, and the king's guard rushed in. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling the stories of their origins, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts, where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose some of humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're discussing the succubus, a female demon from medieval folklore who seduces men in their sleep. The idea of a female demon who seduces men existed in many cultures throughout the ancient world. But the term succubus first appeared in Europe during the Middle Ages. It's derived from the Latin word succubare, meaning to lie under, which is the intended position of the demon's victim. Because there were thought to be more than one of the demons, the word succubi became the plural form. The succubus used sexual activity to drain sleeping men of their vitality. Most victims reported being visited by a succubus only after a physically or mentally exhausting day, and usually described their encounters as dreams. It was believed that repeat encounters with the demon would result in a deterioration of physical and mental health, or even death. Because the Middle Ages had limited medical knowledge, succubi served as a way to explain sudden illness or death. Modern researchers have theorized that the phenomenon of sleep paralysis, in which a person feels a supernatural presence holding them down, also served to convince medieval people of the demon's authenticity. As laws prohibiting polytheism were passed and pagan influence declined across ancient Europe, there was a merging of the two beliefs in which Christian followers adapted many pagan concepts. One such notion was the belief in an afterlife and that good and evil entities battled over our souls after death. These beliefs contributed to the evolution of ancient myths enabling the succubus and other demon folklore to take on religious interpretations. 
Gerbert strained to lift the wicker basket of grain above his head. He slid it inside the stilted granary. Rats ran between his feet from under the storehouse. Although only 17 years old, Gerbert was completely exhausted from his afternoon chores. He sighed and stretched his tired back. There was more physical work to be done, and only then could he begin his studies. Still, life at the monastery in Aurillac was far better than the alternative. Gerbert thought about his birthplace, Beliac. As a boy, his father had shown him how to sow a field, and his mother taught him basic mathematics. Unlike many other children who were thought of as useless, Gerbert was deeply loved by his parents. It was a happy time for young Gerbert, until the village of peasants was attacked. Soldiers, controlled by a nearby warlord, ransacked the town. Gerbert's home was lit on fire, and his parents were burned to death. Gerbert would have died too, if not for a passing monk. The monk pulled Gerbert from the burning hut and brought him to a Christian monastery in the nearby village of Aurillac. Devastated by the loss of his parents, Gerbert searched for and found love in God. He became a monk and promised to devote his life to the church. Gerbert felt that if he were virtuous, as his parents had been, he would see them again in the afterlife. Gerbert followed Father Abbott into the dimly lit library. He always marveled at the extensive collection of books and manuscripts organized upon the shelves. Many of the texts came from cities that were abandoned after the fall of the Roman Empire. Gerbert imagined what life was like back then. He wanted to read everything he could about the old empire, but most of the texts were written in Latin. As Father Abbott searched the shelves for a Latin dictionary, Gerbert wandered over to an old oak table. On it sat a small metal counting board called an abacus. The Romans had used the sliding knobs and grooves on the device to perform mathematical calculations. Although Gerbert did not know how to use the abacus, it reminded him of his mother. She had used a similar technique with stones and lines drawn in the sand to teach him simple addition. Father Abbot motioned for Gerbert to sit at a desk. Gerbert lit an oil lantern and unfurled a piece of parchment for his lesson. Father Abbot explained to Gerbert which parts of the Latin text to transcribe before leaving. Gerbert watched him close the door, then rubbed his tired eyes and got to work. Gerbert's eyelids started to droop. Suddenly, his lantern extinguished and the library went completely dark. Gerbert searched his desk for the lantern, but it was gone. Across the room, a fire striker sparked and the lantern illuminated. Gerbert could not believe his eyes. Flipping through the pages of an old book was a woman. The soft light danced around her figure, highlighting her face, neck, and shoulders. Gerbert knew something was terribly wrong. Women rarely visited the monastery, and when they did, the celibate monks who lived there were confined to their quarters. If Gerbert had not been placed in his room, that meant the woman had snuck in. Gerbert asked, Who are you, and what are you doing here? 
The woman shelved the book, smiled, and introduced herself as Meridiana. Meridiana slowly approached Gerbert, explaining that she had seen him in the fields earlier that day. Gerbert was younger and stronger than the other monks, and so she wanted to meet him. As Meridiana walked across the stone floor, Gerbert noticed that her feet clomped against the stones. He wondered if she was wearing wooden shoes. Meridiana sat on the edge of Gerbert's desk and closed his book. She wanted his full attention. As they locked eyes, Gerbert noticed that Meridiana's pupils did not reflect the lamplight, but glowed red. Slowly, an intense pressure built upon Gerbert's chest, pinning him down into the chair. His arms grew heavy, and a dull pain ached in his head. Meridiana lowered herself onto Gerbert's lap. Gerbert lusted to be with her, but he knew that to lay with her would break his vows to God. With great effort, Gerbert slowly turned his head and tried to focus on something else. He noticed the abacus glistening in the lamplight. Gerbert felt the pressure in his chest release. He pushed Meridiana aside and rushed over to the abacus, eager to distract himself. As Gerbert lifted the device, he turned and asked, Do you know what this is? It's an old counting device, but nobody remembers how to use it. Gerbert looked up and almost dropped the abacus as Meridiana stepped into the light. Translucent wings made of stretched skin unfurled from her back, making her appear twice as tall. Gerbert had heard superstitious tales of a female demon who visited young men at night, but he had never believed them to be true until now. Standing before him was a succubus. The demon's eyes narrowed in anger, and she said, No man has ever rejected me before. Gerbert gasped. He dropped the abacus, but before it could hit the ground, Meridiana's tail shot out and caught it. Meridiana held the device in front of Gerbert and slowly slid the metal knobs back and forth along the grooves. The motion was intoxicating. As Gerbert watched it, Meridiana explained that the machine was useless. If Gerbert wanted to understand the universe, she could teach him spells and dark magic. Meridiana grinned and said, I even have a spell that could open a pathway to heaven. You can use it to see your parents again, if that is what you want. Gerbert understood what the succubus was offering him, a deal with the devil. The thought of seeing his parents again tempted him greatly. Gerbert wanted to make sure they were at peace. He shivered at the memory of the fire. The black smoke had choked him, and he was barely conscious when the monk pulled him out. Gerbert's thoughts returned to his vows. Gerbert made the sign of the cross over his chest and said, No. He bolted for the door. Meridiana flapped her wings hard, and a gust of wind knocked Gerbert to the ground. He tried to stand, but the supernatural pressure returned to his chest, and this time he was too weak to fight it. 
Gerbert lay on the ground, unable to move as the succubus crawled on top of him. Meridiana's forked tongue darted in and out of her mouth, tasting the air near Gerbert's face. He was transfixed by the lamplight that reflected off of Meridiana's eyes. Hypnotized, Gerbert saw the demon as a beautiful creature that he would do anything for. The succubus threw her head back and laughed. Gerbert was hers for the taking. As the succubus ripped off Gerbert's alb and lay on top of him, a vision appeared in his head. In it, Gerbert stood on a balcony, flanked by bishops and priests of the highest order in the church. Below them, thousands of worshippers prayed, but they did not pray to God. They prayed to him. Gerbert screamed as he woke up on the floor of his room. His stomach felt queasy, and his head throbbed as if he'd been drinking the night before. For a moment, he thought that perhaps the succubus had been a dream. But as Gerbert sat up and opened his hand, he saw that Meridiana had left him a message scribed on parchment. The message told him that a count named Borel was coming to take him to Barcelona, where Meridiana would teach Gerbert the devil's magic. With her help, Gerbert would rule the civilized world. Gerbert crumpled the sheet of parchment into a ball and began to pray. Next, we follow Gerbert as he travels to Barcelona. Now, back to the story. Gerbert, enchanted by Meridiana's eyes, was too weak to fight off the advances of the succubus. During the encounter, Gerbert had seen a vision of himself ruling over a powerful clergy of Christian priests and bishops. Feeling guilty for his sin, Gerbert prayed to God to keep the demon from returning. During the Middle Ages, men held power over women in most aspects of life. Women who tried to have some say in their lives were often demonized and thought of as immoral. It was in this environment that myths about succubi quickly transitioned from a creative way to explain illness to a biblical warning aimed at men. If not careful, a hard-working man could fall victim to an evil female succubus who would drain them of their life force. It's also not surprising that during this time, the succubus went from being seen as a hideous creature to a beautiful, often voluptuous, she-demon. Months had passed since the succubus visited Gerbert in the library. If not for the crumpled note, he would have thought he imagined the demon. But each night, after performing his chores around the monastery, Gerbert would fall asleep with the note in his hand, thinking of Meridiana. He was terrified that the succubus would visit him again. Not because he found her physical form frightening, quite the opposite, but because he was afraid of what she had offered him, power. Gerbert thought back to when the soldiers attacked Beliac and killed his parents. At the time, he'd never felt more defenseless and afraid. The memory reminded him of when he'd first met the succubus, and for a brief moment, he wondered if it had sensed this emotion in him. Had Meridiana used it to tempt him away from God? 
To rid himself of the demon's corruption, Gerbert stuck to a strict schedule of hard work in the fields during the day and studying the Bible at night. He was about to put the whole encounter behind him until Father Abbot approached him one morning. Gerbert heaved the basket of grain above his head. Every day it seemed that the basket got heavier. Father Abbot helped Gerbert slide the basket inside the granary and said, I need you to clean the chapter house and refectory. An important benefactor of the church named Count Borel is visiting us from Spain. Gerbert felt the air around him turn cold. His heart pumped fast and his hands trembled. The note was true. The Count had come for him. A few days later, Count Borel arrived on horseback alone. The Count wore heavy armor as if dressed for battle and carried a long spear. As Borel removed his helmet, Gerbert noticed that he wore a long beard similar to the Muslim traders who occasionally passed through Aurillac. Although Borel appeared capable, Gerbert thought it was odd for a noble person to travel without an escort. The road south was unsafe, and people were often attacked by outlaws and wild animals. The monks had prepared food and sleeping accommodations for Borel, but the Count refused to even dismount his horse. He simply pointed at Gerbert and said, Him. Gerbert had no choice in the matter. As a wealthy benefactor, Count Borel held a great deal of influence over the clergy. If he wanted something from the church, he always got it. Gerbert did not protest, nor did he tell Father Abbot about his encounter with the succubus. He knew the holy man would not believe him. Gerbert was out of options. He would have to accompany Count Borel back to Spain. The sound of the horse's hooves on the cobblestone road irritated Gerbert. He'd listened to it for over a month. And in that time, the only thing Gerbert had discovered about Borel was that the man enjoyed silence. Gerbert thought of the succubus and wondered if she would ever return. He tried to tell himself that he did not want to see Meridiana again. But in his heart, Gerbert knew this was a lie. He did want to see her. Falling behind, Gerbert opened his shoulder bag. Inside was the abacus, wrapped in cloth. He wasn't sure why, but Gerbert thought to take it from the library before leaving with the Count. Gerbert shut his bag and quickened his pace to keep up with Borel. Gerbert was about to ask the Count if they could stop and rest when he noticed numerous stone towers rising in the distance. They had arrived at the city walls of Barcelona. Gerbert followed Borel through the bustling city. He gawked as they passed by vendors from various kingdoms selling their goods. Gerbert had never seen so many people crowded together. It was a stark difference from the little monastery in Aurillac. After passing through the city, Gerbert and Borel arrived at a large estate complete with stable. Gerbert thought that such a place would require dozens of servants, but Count Borel's house was completely empty. The surrounding fields had been allowed to go barren, and there were no animals. Borel showed Gerbert to a small room in the back of the house and told him that he would return in the morning. Gerbert shoved his shoulder bag under the bed, 
laid down and stared at the ceiling. The house was sinister and made him uneasy. It was a place of evil. Gerbert thought about praying, but quickly realized it was pointless. God had not protected him from the soldiers at Beliac, nor did God protect him from the succubus. Angry, Gerbert decided to skip his nightly prayers. He closed his eyes. Gerbert woke up to the sound of animal hooves walking down the hall. As the sound got closer, the temperature in his room grew colder and colder. Gerbert could see his breath, and he shivered uncontrollably. The footsteps stopped outside his door. Gerbert's heart raced with both fear and excitement. He wanted to see the succubus again, but he was also afraid for his soul. The door swung open. Meridiana stood in the doorway, illuminated by the moonlight. Her bestial legs bent at the knee in a direction opposite that of a human, and her wings were much larger than Gerbert remembered. The succubus grinned as she stepped through the doorway. Once inside, her thin, leathery tail gently shut and locked the door. At the sight of the demon, Gerbert's fear overtook his excitement. He closed his eyes and began to pray. Meridiana asked, "'What's wrong, monk? I thought you would be happy to see me again.' Gerbert begged God for help as the succubus neared him. The hay mattress sagged as the demon crawled on top of Gerbert. She caressed his face. The tips of her fingers felt like ice, and her nails were as sharp as razors. A drop of blood trickled down Gerbert's cheek. He knew that this time there would be no escape. The succubus was there to kill him. Fear gripped Gerbert's heart, and he cursed God for abandoning him. As he waited for the end, he thought of his parents and how they too prayed in their last moments, prayers that were never answered. The succubus lowered her lips to Gerbert's ear and whispered, Unlike God, I will never abandon you. I will love you if you do as I wish. Meridiana explained that all Gerbert had to do was study one of Count Borel's ancient grimoires. By mastering the spells within the book, Gerbert could grow powerful and spread the dark magic across Europe. Then, peasants like Gerbert's parents could help themselves instead of relying on an absent god. He opened his eyes and asked which book he would have to study from. The succubus said, the Book of the Dead. Gerbert felt his heart skip a beat. What the succubus had said was true. To help others like his parents, Gerbert would have to be powerful. To be loved again, he would have to love Meridiana. Gerbert agreed to the demon's demand. He would study from the Book of the Dead. Suddenly, the pressure on his chest released and the temperature in the room warmed. Gerbert stopped shivering. Able to move freely, Gerbert kissed the succubus deeply and pulled her down on top of him. For the next week, Gerbert could not get out of bed. 
His body felt drained of its strength, leaving him too weak to walk. Each day, Count Borel would bring Gerbert meals and feed him. After that, they would study spells, charms, and talismanic magic from the book. Each night, Gerbert would pray to the succubus. Although she did not return to him, Gerbert never felt alone. Her presence was always with him. As Gerbert regained his strength, he also got better at the dark magic he learned from the book. Over time, Gerbert's power outgrew that of Count Borel, who by then was growing wary of his pupil. One night, as Gerbert studied from the Book of the Dead, he heard footsteps coming down the hall. Thinking it could be Meridiana, Gerbert laid down in his bed and closed his eyes. He was afraid that she would not come in if she believed him to be awake. The door slowly opened and shut. Something was in the room with him. Gerbert could hear it breathing, but it did not sound like Meridiana, nor did it feel like the other times the succubus had visited him. Gerbert did not feel any pressure on his chest, and he could still move his arms. Gerbert looked up. The room was dark, but he could see the silhouette of Count Borel standing over him. The Count lifted a large knife high above his head. Gerbert had just enough time to see it glinting in the moonlight before Borel thrust down. Gerbert squeezed his eyes shut and braced himself. Blood splattered on Gerbert's face, but he felt no pain. He opened his eyes and saw the Count's feet dangling off the ground. A sharp tail had speared Borel from behind and now held his body high in the air. Count Borel tried to scream, but his mouth was filled with blood. His body went limp and he dropped the knife onto the bed. The succubus flung his body to the ground. Gerbert grabbed the knife and backed against the wall, fearful of the rage-filled demon that towered over him. Meridiana's eyes burned red with fire, and long fangs protruded from her mouth. The succubus wiped Count Borel's blood off her tail and said, Your studies have gone well, Gerbert. You're ready. Tomorrow you will leave this place. The succubus knelt down to Borel's body and gently stroked his hair. Gerbert could tell that she had once cared deeply for the Count and did not want to kill him. She had done this to protect Gerbert. Meridiana said, The Count broke his promise to me. Will you break yours, Gerbert? Gerbert whispered, Never. I love you. Gerbert dropped the knife and pulled back the bed covering, inviting the succubus into his bed. The demon laid down on top of Gerbert and told him her plan. Gerbert would go to the city of Rance. There, a sacred assembly of Christian bishops was being held. Once he arrived, Gerbert would use a spell to influence the bishops into voting for him to be the next Archbishop of Rance. The old Archbishop had just been arrested for treason. The next morning, Gerbert packed his shoulder bag, saddled Count Borel's horse, and rode for Rance.
Next, Gerbert attempts to use his position of power to spread education across Europe in order to decrease faith in the church. Now, back to the story. After traveling to Barcelona with Count Borel, Gerbert gave in to temptation and embraced the dark magic offered to him by the succubus Meridiana. As Gerbert became more skilled in casting spells and charms, his power quickly surpassed the Count. Jealous of his pupil, Borel attacked Gerbert, but Meridiana appeared and murdered the Count. She had big plans for the monk from Aurillac. Gerbert looked at himself in the mirror and wondered how he had gotten so old. His hair had thinned and grayed, and his face was covered in wrinkles. It had been 40 years since he rode into Rance on Count Borel's horse and used dark magic to influence the bishops into electing him. In the years since then, Gerbert had risen through the political ranks of the church, quickly becoming one of its most powerful clergy members. He had not done it alone. Before making important decisions or issuing official decrees within the church, Gerbert always consulted with the succubus. It was obvious to him that Meridiana had a plan, and as long as Gerbert did what the demon wanted, he would continue to be a part of it. Now his trust in the succubus was about to be rewarded. Gerbert bowed on one knee in front of a large group of clergy, a bishop slowly approached with the holy mitre. The ceremonial headdress was elaborately decorated with jewels that glistened in the sunlight. The bishop lowered the mitre upon Gerbert's head and with the sign of the cross, appointed Gerbert Pope. Gerbert rose and walked across the room. His alb and white linen tunic scraped the ground as he stepped out onto the balcony of the Lateran Palace. He raised an arm and waved at the crowd below. Gerbert knew that as the head of the church, he would be able to influence all of Western civilization. As Pope, he would enlist famous writers to spread passages from the Book of the Dead. He would open schools to teach dark magic. He would steer the masses away from God. It had all been foreseen. Gerbert grinned as the crowd cheered for him. He enjoyed the adulation of his followers. Perhaps this is how the succubus felt when he and others like him worshipped her. Gerbert made the sign of the cross with his hand and walked back inside the palace. There, an archbishop waited with an official decree mandating that all high-ranking members of the clergy study dark magic from the Book of the Dead. Gerbert signed the decree with his new name, Pope Sylvester II. Since the year 533, when Mercurio adopted the name Pope John II, it was common practice for popes to change their name once attaining the position. Gerbert was no exception, although he did not choose the moniker Sylvester II himself. The succubus had ordered him to use it. Gerbert did not mind taking orders from Meridiana. He trusted her. The bishops escorted Gerbert to the door of his private chambers. Gerbert gave them permission to leave before he entered his room. 
alone, he removed his holy mitre and gently set it on a table. Then he removed his white tunic, alb, and undergarments. He stood up fully naked except for the key tied around his neck. Gerbert shoved his small bed frame away from the wall, exposing a hidden door. Using the key, Gerbert unlocked it and crawled inside. He followed a narrow passage that led to a staircase. Reaching up, he lifted an oil lantern from a hook on the wall and descended the stairs. Eventually, Gerbert came to a large underground crypt. The crypt was damp and cold. Mildew grew between the cracks in the stones, giving the place an unpleasant, sour smell. Old coffins lined the walls, filled with the rotting remains of forgotten priests, bishops, monks, and nuns. Gerbert lifted the lamp and looked around at the crypt. This is where he normally met the succubus, but today she was missing. Gerbert shouted, Hello? I'm here, like you asked. Besides his echo, the crypt was silent. Gerbert noticed a chair in front of a cell located near the back of the crypt. The chair appeared out of place and had not been there last time he'd come down. Gerbert approached it with caution. He lifted the lantern and peered into the dark cell. There, chained to a wall, was the monk who had pulled Gerbert from the fire that killed his parents. Gerbert gasped and dropped his lantern. It broke on the ground, but the fire did not go out. It grew in strength, illuminating the entire crypt. The monk had aged greatly since bringing Gerbert to the monastery in Aurillac. His eyes were sunk in, and his body was emaciated. The monk was close to death. Gerbert crouched down and asked, What are you doing here? The monk raised his head but did not have enough strength to speak. Gerbert noticed the alb the monk wore. Although it was tattered and dirty, Gerbert could clearly see the embroidered seal of an archbishop. From the shadows behind Gerbert, Meridiana emerged. In the cavernous space, the succubus could stand up tall and spread her wings wide. Her eyes glowed red and two sharp fangs emerged from her lips. Meridiana said, He never told you his name, so I will. He is Arnulf, Archbishop of Rands. He would have been the next pope, but I stopped him so you could take his place. At the sight of Meridiana, Gerbert dropped to his knees and bowed. Meridiana lifted Gerbert's chin and kissed him. As she pulled away, a drop of blood fell from Gerbert's lip. The succubus approached Arnulf's cell like a hungry predator. With a sharp claw, she unlocked the cell and entered. Gerbert watched the succubus grab Arnulf's chains and rip them out of the wall. As she lifted the frail man into the air, Arnulf whispered for God to help him. Gerbert thought back to Beliac. After the soldiers had barred the door and lit their home on fire, his mother and father prayed in the same way Arnulf did now. But it had not helped them. They died without mercy. 
Gerbert remembered that in the fire, he had prayed too. In the smoke and darkness, a light had appeared and a hand reached out to him. Arnulf, who was only a simple monk at the time, had saved Gerbert's life. For a brief moment, Gerbert doubted his path. Had the succubus manipulated him? To defy God was the ultimate sin. And now, Gerbert had signed a decree that would spread evil through dark magic. The fire from the broken lamp rose higher, and four other succubi emerged from the shadows. Gerbert quickly backed away. He'd heard stories about other succubi, but had never seen any except for Meridiana. These demons made no attempt to mask their hideous features from Gerbert. Their sharp tails danced behind them, and fire burned in their eyes. Gerbert watched in horror as the succubi converged on Arnulf. Meridiana stood before Gerbert and said, Watch closely, this is your final lesson. Arnulf screamed as the succubi bit into him. Blood spilled from their lips as they gulped. After drinking their fill, the demons grabbed Arnulf's limbs and pulled until they snapped off his body. Meridiana gleefully joined the other demons. She bit deeply into Arnulf's torso and chewed. Gerbert shut his eyes. He couldn't bear to watch the succubi eat the flesh of the monk who had saved him as a child. He realized that he had made a terrible mistake. By trusting the demon succubus, Gerbert had succumbed to temptation and defied God. He'd invited sin into his heart. Gerbert understood that by helping him become Pope, the succubi wished to steer the masses away from God and glorify evil. Gerbert raised his head and shouted, No! Gerbert jumped up and slammed the cell door shut. The succubi turned their heads in unison as Gerbert's trembling fingers fumbled with the lock. Meridiana lunged forward, throwing her body against the cell door. It flung open, hurling Gerbert across the crypt. Gerbert landed on the ground next to a statue. He looked up and saw that the statue was of Mary, Queen of Heaven, seated upon the throne of wisdom. A sliver of light illuminated the statue's lap. There, in the statue's open hands, was Gerbert's old shoulder bag, a bag that Gerbert had not seen since becoming Archbishop of Rance. Trembling, Gerbert opened the bag. As the succubi gathered around him, he pulled out the abacus he had taken from the library as a young man. A memory of his mother counting pebbles in the sand rushed back to him. Gerbert ran a finger over the knobs and grooves of the abacus and smiled. For the first time in his life, he was sure that his mother and father were at peace in heaven. The succubi bared their fangs. As Gerbert made the sign of the cross over his chest, two of the succubi grabbed his arms and lifted him high into the air. Meridiana slowly circled him, hissing furiously. With a sharp claw, Meridiana slashed Gerbert's chest. 
Gerbert looked down and saw his blood dripping onto the floor. Meridiana opened her mouth. Firelight glistened on her fangs. Meridiana bit down onto Gerbert's neck. As the succubus drank his blood, Gerbert shut his eyes. His fingers loosened, and he dropped the abacus onto the floor. The temperature in the room began to rise. The sour smell of mildew was replaced by floral perfume, and bright light illuminated the crypt. Gerbert opened his eyes and saw Mary's statue basked in golden light. The statue slowly lifted her head. Gerbert watched as her face changed shape. Gerbert whispered, Mother. As Meridiana drank Gerbert's blood, her eyes widened. She threw Gerbert aside, spit onto the ground, and grabbed her throat as if she'd been poisoned. Enticed by Gerbert's open wounds, the other succubi quickly attacked him. Their fangs sank deep into his body, and they drank greedily. Meridiana flailed on the ground. Her throat had completely closed, and her insides burned as if on fire. She tried to stop the other succubi from feeding on Gerbert's infected blood, but could not lift herself off the ground. She was dying. As the other succubi fell around Meridiana, writhing in pain, the demon glared up at the statue of Mary and laughed. God was too late. By manipulating Gerbert into spreading knowledge and doubt across Europe, her plan had been set in motion. Eventually, people would defy God, and when they did, evil would rule. Meridiana closed her eyes and her body turned to dust. One by one, the other succubi died and dissolved into nothing. Gerbert opened his eyes. His body was weak. He had lost a lot of blood. With a bloody hand, he clutched the abacus close to his chest and crawled back towards the hidden passage. Gerbert emerged from the tunnel into his room. Slowly, he dragged himself across the floor until he came to his desk. With a trembling hand, Gerbert reached up and grabbed the decree, mandating clergy to study spells from the Book of the Dead. Gerbert opened a lantern and held the scroll to the flame. Gerbert dropped the decree to the floor and watched it burn. The demon had not won. Gerbert struggled to his knees and prayed. He promised God that he would use learning tools, such as the abacus, to spread knowledge and light across Europe. As Pope, Gerbert vowed to end the Dark Ages. Because the succubus was a demon who mostly attacked men, it evolved over time to represent a combination of men's fears and fantasies. People who relied on physical labor for survival often worried that an illness would adversely affect their lives. If a person did become ill, uncontrolled fevers would cause hallucinations that could animate these fears and fantasies. The church perpetuated these fears in order to improve their own social standing throughout Europe. 
Although many popular demons were not specifically mentioned in the religious texts, they served the church as a way to increase their influence and power. Encouraged by the church, superstition and folklore became fact, and people used them to explain or define the mysterious world around them. As unchecked violence, deadly plagues, and other hardships dominated medieval life, it's easy to see why people believed in the succubus. But that does not explain why people continue to report being visited by the demons. Perhaps there are things we still don't understand. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Adam Boland, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.